Thank you, Story family. You know, I love this time of year. I love Christmas Eve. I love the air of anticipation. You know, kids, you're, you're almost there. Just hold on one more day. And parents, you're almost there. Just hold on one more day. All right, well, you know, particularly, I love that we as a church family have the opportunity to conclude Advent, a season of anticipation and looking forward on the day of the year that perhaps best embodies and personifies those attributes. Because Advent, as we've discussed, is a word that means arrival. And it's in this season leading up to Christmas that we remember the anticipation and the hope, even the angst of those who lived for centuries holding to the promise of God that he would send a rescuer. That he would send the Christ to rescue his people from their captivity, to destroy his enemies and to restore his kingdom once and for all. We've been following this thread of the promised Christ through the book of Isaiah, which was written about 700 years before Jesus' birth. And we've seen how these linked prophecies from Isaiah about the Christ were meant to give God's people hope and joy and peace in times of great fear and sorrow and loss. Because God's people were living in captivity in Babylon. Not because God was angry with them or had abandoned them, but because that's what they chose. They had abandoned God and trusted in the power of men who served false idols who were no gods at all. They lost their home. They lost their identity and their nation. All because of their refusal to trust and follow their God. And last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 54 that the reason God was promising to send the rescuer to his people was not just to save them from earthly enemies or from circumstances, but ultimately from their sin. And he does so not because they are worthy of it or have anything beautiful in and of themselves but because God loves with a giving reconciling eternal love last week we steeped ourselves in the why of God's redemptive love but just understanding the why isn't where advent stops Advent is not just the realization that God loves us or seeing why God sent the Christ to rescue us from our sin. Isaiah's book culminates not in the why of God's rescuing, redeeming plan for his people, but the how. How would and how did God accomplish the most unheard of, unexpected yet long foretold rescue mission not only in human history but the one that defines human history this this how 
is the plot of time. It's, it's the climax of creation, the point of human history. It's the central theme of Isaiah's book and the consummation of centuries of anticipation. Longing for, seeking the advent or the arrival of the rescuer. And Isaiah builds up the anticipation for this revelation of the how in chapter 52, verses 6 through 13, masterfully. Let's just go ahead and look at that. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 6. It says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. You know, here Isaiah paints God's work not only as something that he is going to do, but something he has already in fact done. It's this already not yet reality that God's promise is as good as finished. It is past and present as much as it is future. God says, here I am. Yet also here I come. Isaiah says God's arm is bared, meaning he has rolled up his sleeves. He's ready to act. So Isaiah tells the people, get ready. Just as God led his people out from slavery in the Exodus, he is about to rescue and redeem his people once again. And the focal point of that rescue is in verse 13, and it's God's servant who will act wisely, meaning he will accomplish exactly what God sends him to do. And because of this, Isaiah says, this servant will be high and lifted up. He'll be exalted. Isaiah boldly puts the spotlight of human history upon this one person as the world waits with bated breath and aches with anticipation and recognizes that it is now standing on the eve of something. 
how, O God, will you accomplish the salvation of your lost and broken people? How will this advent, this arrival, come to pass? That brings us to our text, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So Isaiah places the eyes of the nations and their kings upon the arrival of God's servant. But their response as they look upon him is not what we expect. So we expect great awe. We respect great rejoicing and trembling. The shock of this revelation, however, turns out to be the stunned silence of great horror. This word astonished in the Hebrew is shamaim. It means appalled, awestruck, stunned, emptied, silenced. It's like seeing a great catastrophe unfold. It's kind of that moment of suspended animation which everything seems almost surreal. And you find yourself at a loss for words or actions. You're just astonished. So why are the nations and the kings so shamaim, so shocked at the arrival of this promised one? Verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The promised one, the Christ, the rescuer, did not arrive beautifully clothed in strength and valor and in conquest. But in blood. He was so revoltingly beaten and scourged. And crushed to the nauseating point that he didn't even look human. Verse 15. The kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Of all the ways the people and the nations and the kings of the earth thought that God would accomplish his great salvation, none of them expected this. This Savior no one saw coming. And just as God's people and nation had been destroyed and disfigured, so too was the one who had come to rescue them. Chapter 53, verse 1. And who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
Isaiah opens the life of this rescuer before us even to the very beginning. It says he came as a child, small, vulnerable, budding like, like a little plant. A child who, who played with mud and, and skinned his knee, went to kindergarten. Just a kid. And as he grew, there was nothing amazing about him. He wasn't good looking or attractive or a child prodigy with great promise. He wasn't one of the it kids at the lunch table. Nothing physically about him made people want or want to be like him. God in Christ Jesus chose not to take on any of those advantages. Verse 2 says he was like a root out of dry ground. He didn't come from high society or a place of privilege. His parents were a scandalized carpenter and his teenage girlfriend. Nothing about the child's situation screamed, ah, keep an eye on this one. And yet there's, there's a root, but no fruit will ever come from this tree. The ground from which it emerges is, is too dry. It's nothing. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So not only was God's promised rescuer, the great servant, not attractive or charismatic, not only were we not drawn to him, we didn't like him. He was bullied. He was pushed out, rejected. He was made fun of. We hated him so much that we thought even God must hate him. Verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And there's something wrong with this guy. And here's, here's something important. Notice Isaiah's use of the term we. Not they, but we. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isaiah says, we have an unavoidable and inescapable part in this tragedy. And here Isaiah gives us a very rough truth. And that's that every one of us would have despised and rejected Jesus. We would have attached ourselves to Barabbas, the revolutionary, or Caiaphas, the respected religious priest, or Pilate, the powerful Roman governor to accomplish our help and our salvation. No one wanted Jesus. Surely this was not the way. Verse 5. But. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Okay, this is the turning point in Isaiah's entire book and his prophecy of the coming rescuer, the servant. This, this is the crux of God's miraculous and unsettling and astonishing how of the Messiah's arrival. And while Isaiah has just placed us in the crowd observing Jesus, he now places us at the cross being crucified with Jesus. He says he was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastised. He was wounded. But it was our transgressions, our iniquities. He brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We, the ones who wounded him, have received our healing by those very same wounds. Our iniquities. Our sins. Our selfishness, our rebellion against our maker. As we stood in the court of heaven, the word guilty rightly ringing out all around us. We did not receive the punishment that we deserved. As as the crack of the hammer drove nails into flesh, it was his blood that flowed. His bones that were shattered. He was pierced in our place. And while we breathed freedom, we heard the exhausted respiration as he, the servant, God himself, was crushed to death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Isaiah unfolds for us the great mystery of how God will actually accomplish his rescue mission for his people, he leads us not in a chorus of celebration, but in a refrain of confession. We did this, Isaiah says. I did this. You did this. We did this. We abandoned our good shepherd. We bit his hand and ran away. We sought to push the God of the universe off of his throne and shouted in his face, get out of my seat. Whether we knew it or not, whether we were malicious or not, every one of us carries the death rattle of our father Adam in our bones. We did this. Merry Christmas. 
that just as God's people, Israel, had physically turned their back on God to chase after other things to satisfy or to sustain or to give them life, other gods or passionate lusts or the primacy of their own capacity to forge their own path, just as they chased those things only to find themselves physically in chains of slavery to those things, in a foreign pagan nation, we too, spiritually, emotionally, and yes, physically, have turned our backs on God to chase after the exact same things, just with different names. We place things and people and feelings other than God as ultimate. We serve them with our time and our energy and our resources and our affections. We, too, bow before the gods of sex and money and power and reputation. And we find ourselves bound in captivity to them. Slaves to our sin and to that which we thought could give us life apart from God. But what is God, our Father's response to we, his rebellious children? The Lord has laid on him, the Christ, the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I mean, just, just look at these words that describe the servant, the rescuer, who Isaiah just applauded in chapter 52, verse 13, as one who would act wisely, who would be high and lifted up and exalted for doing God's will. Verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted, silent. His life was taken away with none to follow in his line because he was stricken in the prime of his life. Buried with the wicked yet in a rich man's tomb. A prophecy fulfilled in Mark chapter 15 verse 46. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. He had done nothing wrong yet willingly he took the punishment for everything that has gone wrong. And he did so silently, unwaveringly, and willingly. And why? Because as Isaiah said, he was acting wisely. He was doing every single thing according to God's will. Verse 10. Yet, amidst all this pain and this darkness, verse 10, yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was the plan. This was the only plan. This was the only way. 
God, the right and sovereign king and owner and possessor and author of time, space, and history, if he was to be a righteous judge in his penalty given to mankind for our infinite rebellion against an infinitely holy God had to give an infinite sentence with an infinite penalty. A penalty exactly proportionate to what we deserved, yet none of us could bear. We were hopeless, lifeless, blind, bound, and ruined. Yet, when none could set us free, God, the King, our righteous judge, left his throne and took our place on the stand and in the cell. And not just in the cell, but on the Roman torture device, which served as the instrument of cruelest punishment that we can imagine. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Rescuer, died in our place, and it was the will of the Lord. But why would God will this? Why would God take this punishment upon himself? Continue in verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah says the one who was cut off without children through his sacrifice shall one day look upon and see his offspring. He who had no heirs will divide his inheritance with countless sons and daughters. The one whose life was cut short will see his days eternally prolonged. He will not be destroyed by his sacrifice but prosper in resurrected life as we who surrender ourselves to him in the death of our old selves are raised to walk with him alive in the new. Romans 6, 4 through 7 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This was the rescue plan of the servant 
the Christ. And Isaiah says, from the servant's anguish will come his satisfaction. By his knowledge, through the outworking of his plan, he will make his people righteous and spotless and blameless, set free from their captivity. This was the plan of God and the reason for the rescuer's arrival. And his plan he has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. I love this. Notice what Isaiah says about what the rescuer does after his work is complete. Verse 12. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He who died is now alive and stands before God our Father as our intercessor. Meaning he stands between those being accused for their sin and their righteous judge. And he says, paid, paid. Their penalty has been paid. As God the Father and judge joyfully accepts the atoning payment of the sacrificial death of the Christ. As he planned before the foundation of the world. God's loving plan didn't just work. It is working. Jesus didn't just intercede. He is now interceding. As pastor and author Ray Ortland says, he's actively saving guilty people today. He treats transgressors as his friends and shares his victory with his former enemies. He stands before the Father making intercession for the very ones who drove him to death. His cross is a power that evil cannot conquer or even understand. Church, the miraculous conclusion of Advent... And the central point of Isaiah's book is how God would accomplish this rescue mission that brings us hope and joy and peace and love. But the astonishing truth that we discover in Isaiah 53 is that this how is actually a who. And the miracle we celebrate this time of year at Christmas is that this who came to us, not as a great warrior, but as a humble little baby. He came wrapped in swaddling cloths, born to a virgin, lying in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. Neither among doctors in hospitals nor kings in a palace, but among animals in a barn because there was no place for him in the rooms of man. Celebrated only by outcast shepherds who heard the news declared by God's holy angels that the time of God's arrival had come. Advent is here. 
as they said, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, what a miracle it is that the we of Isaiah 53, we who looked upon you and considered you stricken and afflicted, we who saw no beauty or majesty in you, we who rebelled against you, who sinned against you, who deserve nothing but the wrath of a righteous and holy God, we have been adopted as your sons and your daughters. For all who lay down their lives, say no longer my will, but yours. God, we receive you as Savior. We thank you that you came on this day that we celebrate as a humble little baby. Not as we would have done it, but only as you would, and only as you could, and only as you did. So God, in the, in the midst of this season, I pray that you would give us clear vision to look upon that baby in the manger and to see our Christ on the cross. For your glory, for our good. It's in your name that we pray.